This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, I talk with Rebecca Tarlow about her new book, Occupying Schools, Occupying Land, which was published last year. The book details the ways in which the landless workers' movement transformed Brazilian education. The MST realized that in order to promote the type of sustainable, vibrant rural communities they wanted to promote in the countryside, they not only had to occupy land itself, but they had to occupy the public school system as well. And this poses an interesting problem for the government. Why would a government that um, is inherently a government that supports um, markets, supports capitalism, supports these more dominant ways of organizing society, why the heck would they allow this radical social movement to participate in the local public school system and promote alternative pedagogies? Rebecca Tarlow is an assistant professor of education and labor and employment relations at the Pennsylvania State University. She is affiliated with the Lifelong Learning and Adult Education Program, the Comparative and International Education Program, and the Center for Global Workers' Rights. Occupying Schools, Occupying Land won the 2019 Book Award from the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Rebecca Tarlow, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, first off, congratulations on your book for the, the award that you just received. Um, and I'd like to sort of begin by thinking more broadly about one of the main points or topics in your book, which is about the Brazilian landless workers movement. For someone who doesn't know too much about it, you know, how would you explain what this movement is? Great. Good question. And it's my favorite topic. <laughs> so... The Brazilian landless workers movement is uh, one of the largest social movements in the world and certainly the largest social movement in Latin America. It is an agrarian reform movement, which means that it's a movement of, of previous, previously landless people who are fighting for land access in order to build sustainable small family farming communities in these areas. And the, the landless workers movement, or in Portuguese, Movimento Centeja, or MST for short, It's a social movement that arose in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And interestingly, it didn't arise as one united, coherent movement, but rather there were like groups of landless farmers who were in deep situations of poverty um, and inspired by the Catholic Church and specifically um, a progressive uh, uh, part of the Catholic Church that was liberation theology. Um, a lot of these landless farmers actually decided to take the issue of poverty into their own hand, and they began to occupy large, unproductive land estates in southern Brazil. And they would then squat on the land for several months and try to pressure the government to get that land redistributed. Uh, and even in a period of dictatorship, Brazil had a dictatorship from 1964 to 1984, this tactic of occupying land and squatting on that land and refusing to leave actually worked and the government began to buy up this land and redistribute it to these landless farmers. And so there were actually a lot of landless farmers who got land access um, between 1979 and 1984. And it was in 1984 that the leaders of these dispersed land occupations throughout southern Brazil decided to come together. And they decided to found one movement, the Landless Workers Movement, the MST, with the phrase that land belongs to those who work it which is a critique of um, this huge concentration of land in Brazil, where historically 
very few people have owned the majority of the land and the majority of the population has been landless. And so that was the founding of the movement in 1984. And so the goal, you know, on the one hand is land reform, but are there other goals that this movement, MST, is is aiming to achieve? Yeah, so the MST articulates its goals in terms of fighting for land reform, agrarian reform, and societal transformation. And so land reform or access to land is one aspect of agrarian reform, but in order to live a dignified life on the land, the movement realizes that land isn't enough. You also need roads and houses and technical assistance for agricultural production, and you also need um, schools and childcare and all these and healthcare systems. And so the fight for agrarian reform is really the fight to have all the resources you need to live a sustainable, uh, vibrant life in the countryside as a farmer. And then the movement's third goal is their fight for social transformation. And so this movement is a self-declared socialist movement, and they embrace historical attempts to construct more collective, uh, just societies, um, and they openly critique capitalism. And so the movement is fighting for um, uh, agricultural production that is more collective. They're fighting for what's called food sovereignty, where local communities can produce their own food that's healthy and appropriate for their culture, and they don't have to actually depend on the market. Um, and so the movement absolutely fights for these larger goals of, of what they call socialism and what we could think of as more social justice-oriented communities that are more collective. And then, interestingly, over the past 30 years, the movement has actually evolved to embrace other goals, such as um, racial justice, indigenous rights, gender equity. And most recently, over the past five years, the movement has also been um, struggling and fighting for LGBTQ landless rights, or in other words, the, the rights of LGBT um, rural people to a dignified life as well. So, so I always say the movement is a movement because it's sort of transformed over the past 30 years to embrace other struggles as well. Do we know anything about the, the size of the MST? How many people are we talking about that, you know, and I know that might be different at different points, but maybe can you give us a sense of, you know, the size of this movement? Yeah, so the movement has gotten approximately 350,000 families that have gotten access to land through this process of land occupation. Um, and the unit they use is families because families are actually the ones that occupy land and they get, they get rights to use that land. Um, so that's about a million and a half people in total that have gotten access to land through this process of land occupation. After families are able to get the, so usually what happens is the families occupy land, they have to camp out on that land for three, four, five years. And then um, in the best of situations, the government will buy up that land and redistribute it. And then those communities go from being what's called a landless encampment to actually being an official government-recognized agrarian reform settlement. And then once there is a settlement or a rural community, uh, the, sh the relationship between families in that new community and the MST is sort of widely different across the country. Um, and so there's many settlements where the majority of families still support the MST and participate in the movement. There's other communities where families will sort of do their own thing and start farming and no longer be participants. And so at any, at any one time, there might be um, 
let's say, 20, 30,000 people across the country that are active participants in the movement and what the movement would refer to as um, militants, militantes, which in um, Portuguese means sort of like activists, but it's more of like a dedicated relationship to your social movement. So sort of full, full-time activists within the movement. Um, and then there's lots of other people who've gotten access through the land, through these land occupations, who the movement wouldn't, who the movement still considers part of their movement, but who aren't like active every day um, in the different activist spaces that the movement has developed. You you talked about some of their tactics in terms of um, occupying land, and and that has been quite successful. Have, are there other tactics and other ways in which they've tried to go about achieving these different goals that they've articulated? Yeah. So I mean, my research specifically is about the movement's educational initiatives, and so initially the movement occupied land and then would try to construct like new communities and new societies on this land. And the movement was actually pretty critical of the school system. Like I said, it was this self-identified socialist movement. They were very critical of the capitalist state. They assumed school systems would simply reproduce uh, like capitalist ideology. But what happened is that once these farmers got land access and built these new communities, local governments had no choice but to build schools in the communities to attend the hundreds of kids that were in these communities. And so initially in the 1980s, the government would send teachers to these schools in these MST communities who would know nothing about the movement, who would tell the kids of these MST activists that their parents were illegal outlaws, that the movement was worthless, and that the only thing they could do to succeed in life was to study really hard, study hard and move to the city and get a good job. So very early on, um, the MST realized that in order to promote the type of sustainable, vibrant rural communities they wanted to promote in the countryside, they not only had to occupy land itself, but they had to occupy the public school system as well. And so beginning in the early 1980s, the movement began to think about what type of school do they want for the rural countryside? Like what type of school would embody their fight for more collectivist, social justice oriented initiatives in the countryside? And so that was um, a big part of their struggle from the very beginning. And were they successful? I mean, that seems like, you know, obviously the the government might not um, want MST to take over the public schools take over the school system. And thus you uh, have um, articulated the question of my book, right? <laughs> like why, why would a government that um, is inherently a government that supports um, markets, supports capitalism, supports these more dominant ways of organizing society, why the heck would they allow this radical social movement to participate in the local public school system and promote alternative pedagogies? Um, So that's the question in my book, and that was the question I was really curious about, because when I arrived in the field for the first time, I saw with my own eyes that indeed the government was allowing activists to do what I call co-govern the public school system. Um, They were allowing activists to um, become teachers, to become principals. They were allowing the movement to develop um, curriculum that talked about the history of agrarian reform and social struggle. Um, They were allowing the movement to reorganize the schools, to encourage youth to stay in the countryside, to engage in activism, to be part of the self-governance of their own school systems. And, and, And they would even have, like I would go to public schools 
um, where there'd be uh, pictures on the walls of like a Brazilian flag. And also the MST has its own flag that symbolizes its movement. And they'd be sort of tied together in the front of the school, representing this partnership between the social, this radical social movement and the government. And so my question of the book became like, how, how does a social movement convince local state officials and also federal officials to participate in the co-governance of the public school system? And, and so how did they do it? I mean, you know, on the one hand, if you're running this MST, you know, it has its own flag, it has its own institutions and, and organizational structures, and it, it has huge amounts of people in rural communities backing it. You know, it's a pretty elaborate social movement. Why would MST even want to work through government institutions? Like, it, it seems a bit contradictory. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and it's the opposite of other social movements. Um, for example, the Zapatistas embrace um, a, a different strategy towards social change. The Zapatistas, which is a, a, an indigenous movement in Chiapas, Mexico. Um, and that movement, they create schools outside of the state system. Um, they create sort of their own counter institutions that don't have to engage the state. Um, but, but, but the MST is different. The MST uh, believes that it is the obligation of the government to provide education to all of its citizens. However, it is the right of citizens to determine what that education should look like and how that should be appropriate to the local context. And so the MST's entire vision and theory of social change is about the transformation of state institutions and how and how citizens can be part of the co-governance of those institutions. Um, and it's and it's contentious. So like one of the main concepts I present in my book is the idea of this contentious co-governance where you have uh, a socialist movement co-governing schools with with um, a capitalist state uh, and they're working together, yet they're always also um, in conflict and, and, and the movement will protest against the same government that they're co-governing with. And so it's a very contentious process of co-governance. And so what does that look like? Is it typically the, you know, the, the MST will hold protests or you know, what happens in the sort of the day-to-day realm of co-governing where it becomes contentious? So um, there's lots of, lots of examples that I, I saw with my own eyes um, doing this ethnography uh, I lived with the movement for 20 months, like in the homes of educational activists. So I thought I saw these conflicts happen all the time. Um, one example that I like to give is in the southern part of Brazil, Rio Grande do Sul. The movement actually got permission from the state government to build legal public schools within their illegal occupied encampments. <laughs> so you would have an actual legal public school within this encampment. And and the movement also got permission for the 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 school to sort of move with the movement of the movement is what I say. Um, so, for example, these uh, occupied encampments were also often getting evicted. Um, but if the land occupation and that community of five hundred families who were occupying that area, if they got evicted and had to move to a new location, the school was legally allowed to move to that new location. Um, and those teachers continued to be public school teachers that were being paid by the state government. Um, but at one point, the resources stopped coming in and the movement um, wanted more resources, both for some of their cooperative agricultural cooperative initiatives and for the schools. 
And so the movement decided they were going to organize a huge statewide march against the governor. And so they began to march to the capital of Rio Grande do Sul, Porto Alegre, um, and they marched from all different corners of the state. And the schools actually were allowed to march with them. So the movement would march to the center, so to Porto Alegre, and these schools would um, like do, like they would like set up makeshift schools like in the middle of the march where you'd have chairs in the middle of the street and you'd have like a little mini school session. You would have kids calculating, for example, um, the distance they were marching each day in order to do math class. You would have like the biology teacher asking about like what the plants looked like. And what's interesting is that they ended up in Porto Alegre in front of the governor and they were protesting him, yet the governor was still paying these public school teachers in these schools that were part of the protest. And so the, these schools, what, what were called, what were referred to as itinerant schools, they were both a public institution and now part of the mobilization of that social movement against the same state that was institutionalizing them. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's so it's it's so interesting on on different levels. I mean, because it really even challenges what the idea of a school is. You know, you don't need these physical walls and spaces anymore to be a school. It can it can literally move um, in different spaces over time and still be constituted as a school. And it's somehow being paid for by the state, but also involved in the very protesting of that state. I mean, it's a really amazing example. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's related to one of the main arguments I try to make in my book, which is about what happens when social movements engage state institutions. And so there's a, a long-standing argument in the academic literature, but also sort of common sense hunches among activists that once you once a social movement engages the state, they're going to actually demobilize and decline in their activism. And this argument in the academic literature goes back to um, Robert Michel's iron rule of oligarchy, where he says organizations always become more oligarchical over time. And also um, Piven and Cloward's writings about the civil rights movement, where they argue that the only effective form of protest is disruption, that there's no other effective form of social movement action. And so I, I um, contest that in my book. I say like, no, like social movements engaging the state won't necessarily be co-opted. In fact, what I argue in my book is that social movements' strategic engagement with state institutions can increase their internal capacity and long-term ability to, to promote social change. And so again, this is a huge argument where I say because the MST has occupied the public school system and has been able to um, influence hundreds of thousands of students across the country and also plug their own activists into the school system as teachers and promote higher educational programs for their activists. They've been able to recruit new activists, and a lot of those activists are, are women and young, young people, um, which is uh, because the school system is a gendered institution with mostly women working within them. That means that there's a lot of women that actually become activists through their participation in these school systems. Um, so because of that, they're able to recruit new activists. They're also able to uh, give activists like both technical and political training. So activists are becoming lawyers, they're becoming teachers, they're becoming um, uh, uh, historians, um, agro agronomists, and they're doing this through this alternative educational project that's both offering technical training and it's also um, 
offering political training in the sense that these schools and even these higher education programs um, are, are structured through this alternative form of organization that emphasizes self-governance um, and emphasizes the importance of politics and political political mobilization. Right. So not, not simply that, uh, you know, embracing state institutions would somehow reduce the value and uh, importance of the MST, but it actually has improved and help them meet their goals even more, is what you're sort of arguing, which is pretty an amazing insight that you can get from this, from the MST itself. Um, I, I, one of the things that I still, you know, maybe you can still help me understand is, you know, why would the state want the MST involved in their schools, right? I mean, I, I can understand the MST side, but, you know, what's the state's logic for embracing the MST? Great question. And I have a two by two table in my book that tries to draw on the different contexts where this is possible. Um, but just to give you an answer, I think before we can like talk about that, we just have to reflect a little on like what's your theory of the state. Um, and in comparative international education, there is a tradition of like thinking about theories of the state um, that I think has been lost a little because people just sort of assume that the state is the government and it's all the same thing. Um, and so for me, the state is not uh, one one entity, um, and no one has power over the state. So even the president doesn't like control the state because the state is actually this really multifaceted um, uh, organization that exists at different levels and within different institutions. And it, there's all these different pieces of the state and people. And and because of that sort of decentralized nature of the state, especially in contexts in contexts like Brazil and even the United States, where where there's like a federal system. Um, in those contexts, there's like lots of opportunities to work with different state actors within that sort of like multifaceted um, uh, ecosystem of state institutions. And so what I find in my research uh, is that the MST is able to garner control and convince state actors to co-govern the public school system in, in very different contexts. Like some of the contexts you might like expect, um, which are more left-leaning contexts where you get uh, like an elected official in power um, who, whose goals and whose ideology aligns with the movement. Um, and so that's a situation where, like for example, in the state here in Jasul, where these itinerant schools were constructed, like that was a situation where a very left-leaning governor came to power um, I have these quotes from the the secretary, the state secretary of education, who says, "Yeah, we came to power, and like the MST, like became part of our government. Like we invited them to participate." Now, the problem with that form of transforming school systems is that when you're aligned with a particular political party, if that party gets kicked out of office, which eventually happened in the state, and a very um, right wing government took power, then you have what becomes this full out attack on the social movement and their schools. And so in Hiran Jasul, which is one of the case studies I have in my book, the MST is first able to create these amazing initiatives by aligning with left-leaning governments. And then when a right-leaning government comes to power, those initiatives are attacked and in, in most cases destroyed. Do they ever come back if like the next election happens and a left-leaning government comes back into power? Yeah, so if um, if if the social movement has enough sort of capacity, um, so in the case of Hinger Jasul, 
uh, the, that period of right-wing attack actually hurt the movement's capacity in that state. So even when another left-leading governor came to power, like the movement itself like it didn't have enough land they were occupying or enough kids in those occupied encampments to even justify this itinerant school experiment that had existed, right? And so that's sort of like, so that's sort of a case of like, like ideological alignment. But actually the cases that um, I talk about the most in my book and that I find the most interesting are in um, cases where there is potentially a really, really right-wing government. However, the capacity of the state itself is very low. And so in some of the northeastern municipalities that I study, like, there, like there's one town where I did research for eight months where the same family has been in power for 125 years. I mean, the same family from like 1890-something, like they've been in power. Um, yet this municipality has such little ability or capability to support the school system that when the MST started engaging with the school systems, uh, they, they, at first they were sort of wary about it, but what happened is that the MST began to like, convince teachers on the ground that what they were doing was helpful. And so just for example, you would have like dozens of teachers in these schools and the MST activists would simply show up to these schools and say, hey, like I am Josalini. Can I help you like set up your chairs? Oh, do you want me to organize like a parent meeting tonight? Oh, by the way, we're running like a teacher training next week on how you teach in rural school systems and how to improve rural school systems. Do you want to go to that teacher training? Oh, by the way, we have a higher education college program. We know that you only have a high school degree. We've developed this program with the federal government. Do you want to study in our program? And so these teachers, and I interviewed dozens and dozens of these teachers, they were so scared of the MST. They're like, oh my God, I'm going to teach in a school where they just invaded land and they're, what are they going to do? I'm so scared. But then they arrived and they realized that the movement was actually a bunch of activists that were like humans and that were helpful. And so for these teachers who had been in these rural schools, like they had never seen the municipal government in decades ever help them with anything. The municipality was so poor, they never ran a single teacher training or professional development program. And suddenly you have this social movement that is offering to help, to help organize, to help offer teacher trainings, to help offer educational, higher educational access. And so little by little in these towns, the MST convinced dozens and dozens and like up until like hundreds of teachers that to support them, to support them, to support their educational project. Um, and so how that translated into like municipal mayor support is I, I would talk to these mayors who by the time I got there in 2011, like these mayors were partnering with the MST to run teacher trainings in this town. And I would go to these teacher trainings and they'd be about like the history of capitalist exploitation. Um, they'd be like explicitly Marxist. And these mayors were like very conservative. And so I would ask them, I'd be like, Leandro, like, why are you like paying for these Marxist teacher trainings? And what did he say? The answer would be like, you know, Rebecca, I don't agree with the Marxist line of seeing the world, but like these MST leaders have a relationship with my teachers. I have to govern for everyone. I don't want to cause conflict or 
Or another another mayor said, look, Rebecca, it's like it's like really practical. Like when I arrived and I was became mayor, like the MST was already working in the schools and was helping the schools function. <laughs> right. And and the state couldn't sort of fill the, the same need so that, you know, you just rely on what is there. I can see how that practical decision would trump any sort of ideological disputes. Yeah, right. So in my book, I talk about these three factors that really influence the ability to co-govern schools. And I talk about um, ideology is important. Um, but for me, ideology is only important when you have like a very strong state capacity where where a right wing government can implement right wing goals. Um, but if you have like a low capacity state, like the ideology almost doesn't matter because if the MST can like sort of support like the governance of the school system and increase the capacity of the state to, to actually um, offer educational access to, to students and teachers, um, that actually trumps it. Um, and, then, and then the third thing that I talk about, though, is just the importance of like the social movement infrastructure itself. And so I went to like one town, which was a similar like sort of low capacity town, um, where the local mayor really wanted the MST to be involved, even though he was very conservative. He's like, yeah, I'd love the MST to help, except we gave the MST control over one of the schools and the community itself. So the people who had occupied land 10 years previously, like actually mobilized against that teacher and said they didn't want the movement in their school. Um, and so that's a case where you have a town where like the MST itself has actually lost the support of its base. And so what I refer to as social movement infrastructure is very low. And if that happens, if like a social movement loses the, the, its power and its relevance in local communities, then, then co-governance can't happen. Yeah. So it's sort of like those three factors, social movement infrastructure, like state capacity and like government ideology. It's it's really fascinating and to think, you know, that how it looks differently spread over the entire country rather than just seeing it as, you know, what's happening as in the nation state. Uh, in 2019, um, Brazil did, well, I guess it was 2018 when the election happened, but Bolsonaro came to power in 2019, very right wing government, at least at the national level. Has that changed sort of relationships between the Brazilian state in its multifaceted way with the MST? Yeah, so I have a epilogue of my book. <laughs> it's called What's Left of the Brazilian Left. I had to write this epilogue five different times um, uh, because like, between when I first submitted my book to Oxford University Press like in 2017 and then when it got published, um, like, things just kept changing so quickly. Um, and actually, in the last version of my epilogue I submitted in August 2018, I only had two sentences about Bolsonaro because he was still this fringe candidate that no one really, um, really took seriously. And so in October 2018, when he won the election, I had to beg my press to let me rewrite the epilogue one last time to try to understand this this particular moment and the right wing resurgence that was happening um, in in Brazil. So and so, what happens with the MST since since the book has been published? Like what what has happened? So and I, again, I talk about this in my epilogue, um, but my argument in that book and sorry, my argument in the epilogue is that even though Bolsonaro's in power, 
he doesn't have all the power of the Brazilian state, right? And so what I argue is that this this 35-year long march through the institutions has meant that the MST is embedded in hundreds of different like state institutions and within dozens of different subnational governance governments across the country. And so although Bolsonaro does have power over the federal government, that does not mean he has power over all of the institutions and subnational governments that make up this complicated thing we refer to as the Brazilian state. So Bolsonaro has done things to attack the movement. He's shut down, like the movement had a lot of um, federal programs that were some of their uh, most exciting educational initiatives, were, were some federal programs they developed like in the late 1990s and 2000s. All of them have been shut down. Um, Bolsonaro has increased um, uh, uh, like actions, like he has increased like the number of evictions, trying to evict uh, people that are occupying land. He also just has like a really hateful um, rhetoric. He calls the MST a terrorist movement. He says that the, the well, he said literally, quote, the welcome mat for a land invasion is going to be a bullet, unquote. Um, and so that, and although he hasn't use like federal and state police to repress the movement yet like that hateful rhetoric has um, increased the violence against the movement has increased like the assassinations um, so all of that is true um, but what I do in my epilogue is I try to offer some reasons for for cautious optimism um, even in this new conservative context and and I talk about like four reasons for cautious cautious optimism like the first reason for cautious, cautious optimism is that, again, if Bolsonaro's, if Bolsonaro doesn't like solidify like a military fascist state and like his only strategy is to cut resources at the federal level, like the MST will potentially be able to ride that out for a few years. Um, and that looks like what's happening right now, although I say that cautiously because I know that like things can take quick turns. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is it's interesting that now we have this like common enemy who's um uh who has mobile like the the Brazilian left had been divided for the past 30 years since the workers party came to power there was lots of divisions a lot of internal fighting and now actually these different left groups are more united than ever before and the MST itself had to play this sort of delicate political dance with the left-leaning workers party government when they were in power and now they don't. They can just be. They can just protest and go back to sort of old repertoires of action of like protests and mobilizations. So, um, so that's like a second reason for optimism. A third reason for optimism is just the 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 children or the youth who have grown up through um, these MST educational offerings that have become. Um, active in the movement through this alternative form of schooling where they participated in like the self-governance of their school and were encouraged to then translate that into um, the self-governance of their social movement and their communities. And so like there's thousands and thousands of youth still in MST communities that whose political consciousness has transformed and who are not going to be like leaving the movement anytime soon. And then just my fourth like reason for cautious optimism is that I think unlike um, like the early 1980s, like the, the movement is now facing this conservative context with this new, what you call this new like arsenal of like resources that they've gained through this long march through the institutions. So for example, in the agricultural sphere, 
Um, the movement has dozens and dozens of successful agricultural cooperatives throughout the countryside. And although federal support was really critical to get those started, now they're just part and parcel of local economies. They're really viable. And again, unless Bolsonaro takes a really fascist turn, he can't destroy those like successful economic initiatives. Um, and in the educational realm, the movement are, has already through federal programs, given higher educational access to hundreds of thousands of like people from the rural countryside throughout the country. Bolsonaro can't take away the, those degrees that people have achieved. The movement um, developed partnerships with over 80 universities and has gotten, like they went from being a movement of farmers with like fifth grade education to a movement of farmers with college, college degrees, master's degrees, PhD, PhDs and beyond. And again, it's through this particular program um, where the movement has, where the movement was able to create um, what you could call like affirmative action programs for agrarian reform areas, um, where only people from these like occupied land land encampments or from these agrarian reform settlements could enter these higher education programs. And through these programs, again, thousands and thousands of people got their higher ed degrees. But more important than getting their degrees is they got their degrees through um, this alternative educational model that allowed them to prefigure, and I use this language in my book, it allowed them to actually prefigure the type of social and economic world they wanted to live in, like through this four-year course. Um, and so I always say that these activists are like very aware of the type of wor a world they want to create because they lived it in practice through these programs. And now a lot of these Activists are working at the subnational level in schools. And so this is sort of like the final point. Like the 2,000 schools the MST has in their communities are actually run by municipal and state governments. Like it's a very decentralized system. Um, and so although Bolsonaro won the election in 2018 in the North and Northeast, like the Workers' Party just swept the election. And in a lot of those locations, like governors and mayors, that are left-leaning are more willing than ever before to work with the MST as a form of resistance against Bolsonaro, right? And so I think the MST obviously is going to have, is going to, like a lot of their federal programs and federal initiatives were cut, but now they're looking for other sub-national arrangements where they can keep pushing forward their educational and agricultural goals. And so, so the MST is not going anywhere. Bolsonaro does not have the power to, to stamp out the MST uh, and the and and the power that the MST has garnered over thirty five years through this long march through the institutions. Rebecca Tarlow, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed, and again, congratulations on the award. Thank you, thank you so much. It's been great chatting. Rebecca Tarlow is an assistant professor at the Pennsylvania State University. Her book is Occupying Schools, Occupying Land: How the Landless Workers Movement Transformed Brazilian Education. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Oktas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. 
please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. All U.S.-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.